from the countryside, which is very popular these days, uh, we have with us uh, the founder uh, of Acid Jazz uh, Records, and also I'm led to believe a very uh, big cricket fan. So it is a very big Phoenix FM welcome to Mr. Eddie Pinner. Eddie, how are you doing? Hello. Yeah, great. Thanks. And look, let's get this established. When you say countryside, I'm talking Harlow. <laughs> <laughs> Just down the road from Brentwood, but there you go. <laughs> oh, that's Harlow. Is that Newtown or Old Harlow? There is a difference, isn't it? I'm just, I'm actually in a place called Potter Street, but um, it's just on the edge of the great conurbation that has been destroyed by progressive councils over the last 20 years. I used to be a big fan of Newtowns, but I'm not anymore. There you go. <laughs> I'll try not to say there you go again. I, that's the second time in, in my first two sentences. So sorry about that. So I'll, when I do the video, I'll put a, I'll put a counter up in the corner of the screen. How many times you say there we go? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> so um, welcome along to Phoenix FM. Really pleased to have you on board. Um, just sort of thinking about things, it it, it it shocked me a little bit of of, of how long acid acid jazz has been going, um, and the fact that. You know, for, for my, my my serious interest in acid jazz was sort of early nineties. That's thirty years ago now. But you were you 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 formed the, the label on the back of the sort of acid house um, sort of rave scene. Is that correct? In the in the late eighties. Yep. Um, myself and a DJ. You probably wouldn't have heard of him. He hasn't made much of a go at it himself. But his name's Giles Peterson, and and we established yeah. the label uh, in nineteen. 87 but we didn't release the first record till 88 um, about March 1988 so you know we've been going nearly 34 35 years almost and um, notable acts from the sort of early-ish days um, brand new heavies Jamiroquai Galliano um, was it true that you were the first label that discovered Jamiroquai or to sign Jamiroquai in those days uh, both yeah um, he came to my office having been turned down by most of the music industry, uh, who said that he couldn't sing and he couldn't write songs and he couldn't dance. And uh, I think he didn't have anywhere left to go. They'd all turned him down. And within 30 seconds of him walking in, and st he started singing over a brand new Heavy's instrumental. I offered him a contract there and then. And um, we made his first few records. But then, of course, Sony came in and stole him off us, like, which often happens, even though we had a contract. Uh, they actually said, our lawyers are bigger than yours. And, um, you know, there you go. Oh, I said it again. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned Giles Peterson. I think that was the first time I heard Jamiroquai was when Giles had a show on Kiss FM, uh, when uh, Kiss FM was a very different animal to what it is today. But I remember hearing When You're Going to Learn and the original mix of that, which sort of made me stop, stop in my tracks uh, when I first heard it. And I think that's quite a hard version to track down these days uh, for whatever reason well i don't know why because we sold thirty-eight thousand copies of that which you know which made it quite a quite a successful record for us at the time i, th I think it only got to like number 30 odd in the charts or something but by that time sony had already kind of subsumed us with their their cotton wool and tried to stop us even releasing that but there wasn't anything we could do they could do about it really um i mean that i i pretty much sweated blood over that i sat in the studio with jay and made the demos in my own studio with him co-produced with him but then he got ideas of grandeur and decided he wanted to record it in different studios so you know we let him have his head because he was very talented 
after the sixth time he tried to re-record when you're going to learn we just said look you know forget it we'll just put out the original which which is what we actually did but i think i was involved in three the first three singles too young to die and um half the no 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 i can't remember the other one the slow one but there was also another single which we didn't actually release called in the sunshine which nobody ever heard and i i found a multi-track uh, tape of that in my uh, archive the other day so with a bit of luck you might be hearing that one day it's a bit of history and the brand new hoovies as well um from around that period um, yeah, loads. I mean, loads, loads more bands than that. Yeah, you know, de influence the James Taylorwood Tech, Cordroy, Mother Earth, A Man Called Adam, Left Field. I mean, you know, hundreds of bands that we found, discovered, and set up for successful careers. So you know, but that was thirty-five years ago. In, in the last few years, we've had three or four albums in the in the album charts. You know, we we release lots of different styles of music not just funk and soul and jazz anymore. We release folk, um, reggae, done very, very well with reggae. We're currently making an album with a 93-year-old Ernest Wrangling at the moment, which, wow. uh, yeah, he can still play as well, which is great. But, you know, um, Ken Booth has just recorded a new single for us. We've got loads of great reggae stuff coming out. Yeah, you so know that I do, I, I do an old-school reggae show on the, on the station, Reggae Revival. Well, we don't, you know... I, 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 we uh, we bought up a couple of old Jamaican reggae catalogs back in the day. A company, a label called Midnight Rock, which is mainly the Roots Radic uh, backing track, but also we bought Hit Sound, which belonged to uh, uh, U Brown. Um, great little label, didn't release enough. Produced a brilliant, Del a lost, famous lost Delroy Wilson album, which we're still looking for. But um, you know, I love all kinds of music as long as it's got a bit of soul to it. You know, don't like techno. <laughs> or house don't particularly like house anymore I liked it when it came out but you know there you go oh <laughs> sorry um, Ed can I ask you this, uh, going right back uh, yeah. your um, introduction to music actually came from your mum wasn't it rather than your dad she was the um, she ran the Small Faces fan club didn't she is that right well she did um, I didn't find that out until I was actually about 15 and I'd just become a mod and my dad said oh you know your mother did that uh, and I didn't know that but my, my musical introduction came from their record collection like most other kids at the yeah. time you know so their record collection my mum's stuff was full of great 60s mod music and my dad's stuff was full of um, Tubby Hayes and you know the great British jazzers of the late 1950s to mid 1960s I was very lucky with my upbringing but then of course I discovered punk and, uh, you know, all that old people's stuff was out the window. And uh, I just wanted to embrace this new new scene. You know, I was 14. And then I saw the jam and I became a mod. something which has kind of stayed with me ever since. Yes, I uh, also discovered the jam. About 82, I first got into it. But then they immediately split up, of course. Yeah, December then, the 13th. Yeah. Uh, then, of course, I watched Quadrophenia. So then I got into The Who and obviously The Small Faces. Another band I wanted to um, ask you about why they were not massive, but they were one of the best bands of all time, which was the action. Well, very similar story to the action is that of uh, a band that we've just released an archive compilation of uh, called the Fleur de Lis. And the oh. trouble with these two, these two bands were the Fleur de Lis were the main British signing to, 
to Atlantic Records and the action was signed to the same label as the Beatles with the same producer as the Beatles, Sir yeah. George Martin. And when you've got, you know, priorities like Led Zeppelin or, you know, whoever, the Beatles, your great little mod bands are not really going to get a look in. And the thing about the action was they never got the chance to release an album. George Martin has been quoted as saying they were the best band he ever worked with, which just goes to show you how good he thought they were when he did all the Beatles records. Um, but the trouble is, you know, the vagaries of history can be very unkind. And music is not about talent. It's about luck and about manipulation of charts and of radio and everything else. So there were so many brilliant bands in the history of music that never got a look in because they just weren't in the right place at the right time. And I'm afraid the action were, were one of them. I mean, all you got to do is listen to their, their archive, their back catalogue, and you can tell that they were by far the greatest yeah. model that ever yeah. walked you know, and I'm from the small faces. I grew up knowing the small faces, funnily enough, um, even though I didn't know my mum did the fan club. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so the action of one, oh, probably my favourite band, funnily enough, so well spotted. Yeah, sensational. Also, The Eyes as well as another one that I loved that didn't make Well, I it. met him the other day. I met uh, the lead singer of The Eyes comes to our events, ah. the, mod, the Modcast events. So uh, that was nice. Right. Uh, back in uh, 84, I, I was too young to go to uh, gigs uptown. So the first ones I went to were at the Ilford Palais. And I believe that it may have been your events. Was it the old days you used to throw we're, up? Really, you really were a teeny mod, weren't oh, you? Oh, yeah, at the Ilford Palais, yeah. Yeah, they were mine. I started putting on those gigs because we didn't. We were sick of old people, old men my age now, telling oh. us what we should listen to and what we should like. I was just 17 when I hired out the Orphan Palais. Um, I was too young to sign a contract for the venue, so my dad had to sign it on my behalf. It was sold out. And, you know, we had three very happy years there until the local Gansill casuals called the Riot Squad, they had enough of mods coming down to Ilford. So they, they basically, the final all day was the final day because they about 150 of them came down and smashed the venue up, the Ilford Palais up. And um, we were never allowed back, which was a real shame. 1984, that was, I think. Yeah, that's right. Also, about that time, I started going to Carnaby Street and uh, used to go to see Jimmy and I used to buy the singles. Your fanzine as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> one of the first singles I bought was actually on your Well Suspect. Fast Eddie. Yeah, Fast Eddie, yeah, you got it, yeah. Well, they were from, I mean, they. I think their last ever gig was in Brentwood, actually, at oh. the Hermit Club. Is that still there? Yeah. yeah, it's still going, yeah. Surprised it's not luxury flats like every other venue I've ever been to. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it, it was a great time, the, the kind of mod scene. I was very lucky. I was a very young entrepreneur. I, I knew, I left school at just well, 15, actually, because I wanted to work in the music industry. I couldn't get a job. So I concentrated on making my fanzine a success and we ended up selling, you know, I think by issue 16, we were selling 13,000 copies of a homemade magazine that I did in my bedroom and, yeah, uh, you know, stapled by my nan, funny enough. <laughs> <laughs> Just remembering her going around the table with all the different pages, you know, like all laid out in the right order. And I would just wind her up and push her off and off she'd go. And six hours later, she'd bring me like, you know, here's a thousand, Edward. And it's like, thanks, Dan. So, yeah, it was all completely, you know, off, off me own back. I always 
worked very hard because I loved music and I wanted to do that as, as a career. So by the success of the fanzine, eventually I got picked up by Stiff Records in 1984, 85. And uh, they gave me my own office and my own staff and uh, my own label. And I was still not even, I think I was 21, 20. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, was, it, was, it was a very good time for me. Yeah, and uh, when I first started going to the gigs in London, 100 Club, uh, we came to those bands uh, on that label, The Prisoners and Making Time, who were massive favourites of mine at the time. Fantastic. Uh, you'll be about four years younger than me, so what are you, about 53, 54? You got it, spot on, 53, yeah. Yeah, well, that's you're the right age for that second. We call that the second wave of the Mod Revival, you know, like... Uh, yeah. After the chords and the Purple Hearts and Secret Affair had all split up, you know, when the jam went, everybody thought that's the end of it. In fact, what happened then, everything got bigger. You had the truth, you had the untouchables, making time, the prisoners, fast Eddie, and, and the set the moment and all those little bands. And, mm. and the scene just got bigger because all the kids that were 10 in 1979, when the jam were around, were suddenly by 1984 were suddenly old enough to go to gigs and old enough to buy their first scooter. So suddenly you had this enormous explosion of, of mods all around the country, in fact, all around the world. And we just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And do you think there's any reason for mod culture um, surviving in the way it's done? Because you just sort of touched on there, in the late 70s and early 80s, there were lots of different kind of groups. You mentioned the casuals, um, there were new romantics, there were skinheads, um, I, th I think at the, at the time, um, sort of 60 style rockers were trying to fall some oh, you had, yeah, Well, you had the heavy metal kids, you had rockers, casuals, soul boys, yeah. uh, rockabillies, Teds, you know, you had goths, yeah. new romantics. Um, why, why has all that faded away, but mods have prevailed? Acid House. Acid House came along and destroyed everything. What, what was the point in making an effort, dressing up, if all you were going to do was go to a warehouse or a muddy field, take ecstasy and just kind of make shapes in a sweaty T-shirt? What was the point in making an effort? And, of course, the thing about mods was, you know, Acid House destroyed the mod scene as well. But what Acid Jazz did was give mods a chance to get back into music by, by taking what, you know, Galliano always says that acid jazz was half mod and half casual. The casual was through Charles Peterson and the mod was through me. And then Acid House came along. We're all like, well, no one comes to our gigs anymore. What are we going to do? Oh, I know. We'll just give our style of music a different name. So by calling it acid jazz, it didn't have much to do with acid house, by the way. Um, and people started coming and all the mods that, you know, didn't want to go to a field and all the soul boys that preferred dancing to jazz and jazz funk gravitated around what we were doing. And I tell you what, it became bigger than Acid House because for one thing, it broke America in a way that Acid House did it, techno did many years later. Um, but as you can see from all those awful films made in the late nineties, where they go in a nightclub in America and it's all banging awful techno. But the thing about Acid Jazz because of the heavies and Jamiroquai and stuff, it broke all over the world. So for a couple of years, from about 1990 to 1993, it was the biggest scene in the world. And we sold probably 70 million records collectively with our bands and Giles's bands on Talking Loud. So it was a very, very successful reinvention of youth culture. But none of the other youth cultures survived, really, that period of, of, of Acid House. 
that you know I can't remember the last time I saw a teddy boy. Yeah. I can't even remember the last time I saw it. It's funny. There's always lots of there's a few skinheads around now that always say, "Yeah, but I wasn't one of those skinheads. I wasn't a Nazi skinhead. I was a reggae skinhead." Yeah, right, mate. How many reggae skinheads did I meet in nineteen? Uh, yeah. Anyway, we'll leave that there. Yeah, they, all, I don't remember those been the ones standing on my head on the playground. Well, well, that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, my whole life was spent either fighting or running away from yeah. or chasing after. Boneheads, as we called them at the time. We didn't even call them skinners. They were nothing to do with that glorious youth culture of the mid-70s, you know, dancing to rock steady with, you know, girls with feather cuts. These were shaven-headed morons who went around beating up people. And they, yeah, and I'm glad they've gone. Yeah. That was emotional. So let, me, <laughs> let me ask you about cricket, because uh, a little bird told me that you are, you are into your cricket. Um, where, 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 do you want to just tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. The only thing, well, that's not true, actually, but the only thing I liked at school, I was going to say the only thing I was any good at, but I was actually quite good at school in general. But the only thing I enjoyed at school was cricket. I was a leg spin bowler. I had one game for Essex under 14s. Uh, where I didn't, they didn't bowl me. What's the point of that then? If you're going to, anyway, you know what it's like. It, 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 at that level of cricket, it's all about the regions of Essex. And, you know, you have to pick two from central Essex, two from north. So I was one of the West Essex uh, kids that got put forward. And because the manager, I think, was based in Ilford, I didn't even get a bowl. So that, that was quite soul-destroying. But apart from that, I played cricket my whole life. Cricket was the kind of thing that you could do anywhere at any time. I'd go to Australia, I'd get a game, you know. I followed England around the world. When, when Asher Jarrett was at its peak, I was lucky enough to have the money to follow England to the most bizarre places long before the Barmy Army. And in fact, I stopped going when the Barmy Army kind of turned up because I think they ruined with their constant bugles and constant crap. I think they ruined the concept of going to, you know, my favourite time, even though we got absolutely hammered in the test, was going to see England play uh, the West Indies in Guyana, in the old ground, um, before they built this new fancy cricket ground out, out of town. And it was just the best thing I ever did. There was about 25 people from England there, and most of them, I sat next to Mark Rampakash's family for the whole game. And there were probably about... 25 people from England, but the ground was completely full up. I remember Ian Salisbury was playing because he's a leggy. He used to give me nets and he used to teach me. He used to teach me cricket. Um, but anyway, I remember he got absolutely hammered. But, well, the young kid made his debut and scored a 50 um, from Guyana. And uh, I can't remember his name now. Anyway, there you go. He was about 16 at the time, and he, he went on to be one of their best players for the rest of his career. But, of course, this is now... I'm not Chanderpaul. Uh, yeah, 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 the young one. Yeah. Chanderpaul. Yeah. yeah, that was... I think he made his debut, and everyone's saying, you've got to watch out for this kid. He's really good. So I played a lot, and then, bizarrely, I got a phone call from Mark Webster, who you sound like, funnily enough. <laughs> and uh, you do sound like him. You've got a bit of the Webster about your voice. He was a big cricket fan. And he said, look, uh, there's an opportunity come up. Would Acid Jazz like to sponsor Surrey? Now, at the time, in spite of being from Essex, I didn't like Essex because I didn't get to play more than one game where I was a fielder. So um, so I, I was very keen on Surrey. They had the best team at the time. So I said, well, what's the plan? And he goes, well, a mate of mine is, is a bowler called uh, Kendo, Neil Kendrick. I think it was a slow 
slow bowler and uh, he needs a sponsor. Uh, it will cost you about 800 quid to pay for a car. So I went down, I had a meeting with a girl and she said, well, look, we're trying to attract young people into cricket. Um, you know, would you be interested in a bigger package? And I said, what do you mean bigger package? Well, you know, bigger sponsorship package. <laughs> oh, God. I'm just remembering. So I said, well, you know, how much? She goes, four grand. I said, well, what do you get? She goes, well, I'll tell you what, for five grand, you get the following. Your own box at the Oval. You get four sight boards around the sight screens. You know, um, you get one match on the wicket. Hassan Jazz versus somebody else, because we had my own, Hassan Jazz had a cricket team for many years, you know, we turned out regularly. We used to play at the Paddington Wreck at the time. Um, and, you know, lots of kind of relatively famous people. We used to have a Crystal Palace player open the batting for us and things like that. So it was, you know, a slightly celebrity, but much more relaxed kind of foot, uh, cricket side. Um, and, uh, you know, so this was peanuts. You can imagine how much that would cost today. It'd be half a million pounds. Yeah, yeah. Because don't forget, in those days, cricket was on television every Sunday. And Surrey were one of the main two teams, along with Middlesex. And they were always on telly. So I, you know, spoke to my partner, Trevor, who was sadly murdered in America by Russian gangsters. That's another story. Oh. Found his headless body in Mexico. But he was another trip, uh, big cricket fan. And uh, he went to Repton, which I think was quite a big cricket score, although he got expelled. <laughs> um, anyway, so we took this package and I've got to meet Kendo. And, and what they said, they, and the reason I picked Neil Kendrick, uh, Neil Kendrick was the soul boy and he was a big acid jazz fan. But, you know, when I went down for the meeting, they said, well, you can choose somebody else from, you know, maybe from the second 11, you get somebody else to sponsor as part of the package. So I phoned up my mate, who was a cricket commentator at Test Match Special, like a producer, not a commentator. And I said, anyone in the Surrey second 11, I should pick as a sponsor. And he went, well, there's this kid who's, you know, he's only, I don't think he's played for the first thing, but his name's Adam Hollyoke. And, you know, I, I've heard good things. So I picked Hollyoke. Within nine months, he was captain in England's one day side. Right. So suddenly I found this acid jazz at the centre of Surrey's best season, you know, for many years. I'm down there, long hair and a beard, playing on the pitch um, with my own box. And it just, you know, we, we, we took Loaded Magazine down to see Surrey Middlesex and Phil Tuffle spent the whole afternoon in our box thinking that the game was finished when in fact the sun came out and then he hid under the table when Mike Gatting came in and said, has anyone seen Tufnell? Uh, <laughs> he's going into bat in half an hour. And of course, he was under the table, having had a couple of pints, shall we say. I had a wonderful time with Surrey. I got to know a lot of the England players. I, I regularly had nets with Adam and Adam said, if you think I'm good, you want to see my brother Ben. And I something happened with Ben Holyoke and I was never sure what it was because I think they stopped his England career far too early. You know, he had such promise. And I think his last game was 88 not out for England, bang at like number eight or something. And they never picked him again. That's an approximation, by the way. Yeah. And I, don't, I never really knew why. And I think a lot of the time around that time, Mike Atherton was really against having a separate setup for the one day side. And he, I think he resented Adam Hollyo coming in, being a captain with an Australian accent. And I think, you know, the powers that be 
Mickey Stewart was around. You know, it was very much old guard. And they didn't like this concept of a separate one-day side. And consequently, I think after Hoddy Oates' experiment, they went back to having the same captain. But it never really worked. So after a few years of having a brilliant time, uh, I had to stop sponsoring because obviously I wasted all my money on a nightclub called the Blue Note in Hoxton. And um, so I stopped sponsoring Sorry, But it gave me, that's how I met Mark Butcher, you know, and that's how I met so many of the England players. And it was such a laugh. It wasn't, well, you'd be amazed at how unprofessional it was. It just seemed to be like big club cricket. You know, club cricket with brilliant players. First 11 kind of, Plus and plus, you know, playing against the West Indies for, you know, it was just a brilliant time. And I think gradually, you know, cricket realised it couldn't carry on. It had to get professional. And it did in terms of sponsorship and in terms of player preparation. So, you know, I can remember an England player on that West Indies tour, which was probably the last it's in the early 90s, probably the last unprofessional. I can remember an England player dancing around a table with his trousers around his ankle, dancing on a table in a bar full of, you know, about 20 Brits and about 40 West Indians. And just thinking, what the hell is going on? You know, what is, that guy's going to be batting tomorrow. You know, it, it was just a mad time and one of the best times of my life. You mentioned the Blue Note and Hoxton. Now, when you went down that path, Hoxton was a fairly, um, shall we say, not too fashionable part of London. It was all sort of bomb sites and disused warehouses. and That's um, right all kinds of stuff. Um, and I've read an article saying basically that you were the man that basically turned it all around and is responsible for it now being achingly hip and trendy. What do you say? About no, that? it's not. It's no longer achingly hip and trendy. This is the trouble. What happened? I'll tell you exactly what happened. Uh, my dad was born a hundred yards from where the blue note was. I worked for stiff records in Hoxton square. I used to go for lunch in this club and it went bankrupt. Um, it was a downhill derelict, a jazz club set in a Victorian lunatic asylum. And it was derelict. I bought it for uh, £200,000, you know, the freehold of a five-storey nightclub. And I made a gallery. I made uh, two recording studios. I had offices. I had a nightclub. I had a cafe, the whole kind of thing. Um, and we were the only business. There was a taxi firm. There was a couple of independent kind of media companies and there was uh, the news agent didn't even have a front window it had a grill it was a hole in the wall so when when i bought it my dad said don't son do not you'll have gangsters asking you for money you know it's a very racist area uh, the hoxton was one of the last uh, white ghettos in london at the time and they they like the isle of dogs they still had bnp councillors if you can imagine yeah yeah, so, yeah. you know um, and we found that a lot of them... So basically, I spent a million pounds on turning this derelict building into a nightclub. And then just before we opened, a member of the council came to me and asked me for a £10,000 cash bribe or we wouldn't be able to open. And of course, I exposed him to his boss at the council. And because of the way Hackney Council, the corruptness of Hackney Council at the time, he didn't get fired. So from that point on, he tried to close me down. I got, we got the license. I didn't pay the bribe. But from that point on, I, I was in a six-year fight to not close the club down. 
it took six months for the club to get going. And by then, it was full up every single night. Um, you know, seven nights a week, there'd be a queue outside. It became the coolest club in the world for, you know, a few years. And it was. And I've got one little story to illustrate how cool my club was. And I'll tell it because I remembered it the other day and I did tell it once recently. But <clears throat> basically... We didn't allow celebrities. We had a lot of celebrities come and we didn't allow celebrities to go to the front of the queue. You know, we didn't, you didn't have to wear, you know, no jeans, no trainers, you know, all that crap that you had in clubs in, in the beginning of the 90s. We didn't have any of that. If you wanted to come to our club, it didn't matter if you looked like a vicar or a tramp or, or you know, David Bowen. Anyway, so one night I'm sitting in my office in the club and, and the head of security has come and said, look, you know, there's, there's a couple of people downstairs. I really think you need to let them in. Yeah, they're queuing up. I said, well, they have to queue up. That's what we do. And he said, no, no, you really need. So anyway, I said, they can queue up. Five minutes later, he comes back and goes, look, uh, you know, I'm sorry. You're going to have to come down and see him. So I go downstairs and standing on the steps in the front of the club is Damon Hill and Barry Sheen. And I go, <laughs> oh, my God, God, I'm so sorry. You've had to wait. Come in, come in. I took them through to the bar, took them up to the, the bar manager and said, look after these chaps, you know, Barry Sheen's one of my heroes, but it'd be fantastic. Anyway, I go back upstairs to be followed by the angry head of security. He goes, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean what are you doing? He said, I, I came down. I said, I've let him in. He goes, not them, you idiot. Come downstairs. So I follow him angry by now. I don't like being disturbed when I'm, you know, anyway, so I get back downstairs and there at the front, about four back from the front of the queue is David Bowie and Imam standing in the queue and I go oh them I didn't see him I'm really sorry so I go to David Bow and I say look mate I'm really sorry you know we we're quite busy tonight would you like to come in he said look I've been queuing up for half hour I've got absolutely no problem with queuing up I'll be in in 10 minutes how cool is that wow. David want to jump the queue so so that's how cool it was um, and I had a fabulous time but eventually the council won the area became gentrified there was another nightclub open called the 333 was a lot more down market than us, but they brought a lot of people in. And because they were paying their bribes to the council, they were allowed to open. Eventually, the council closed down the club. I owned two other bars in Hoxton Square. The council took the license away from all of my, all of my clubs, and I lost quite a lot of money. So from that point on, I had to start again, and I was quite poor. But it still gave me the best seven years. You know, it's the most, it's the most. It was a wonderful nightclub. You know, all the people that started it, Goldie, Talvin Singh, Cold Cut, it was just amazing. Was Blue Note Records associated with that, or was that something else? No, we nicked the name, because it was jazzy. Yeah, yeah. Ed, is it right that I, I read that you're writing your autobiography? Yes, that is right. I'm nearly finished, actually. It'll be finished by the 1st of June, but it's not my autobiography. This is weird. The publishers, who are quite a big publisher, only want me to write my autobiography up to before I started Acid Jazz. So it will be a, an autobiography of the mod scene, of my time on the mod scene up to about 1985. So all the Acid Jazz stuff, the Blue Note, that'll all come in part two, apparently, according to them anyway. Interesting. Also, a question sent in uh, from a mate of mine called Derek Cox. He said, um, how did you get to meet Martin Freeman and realise that you had the same taste in music? 
See, he must have read my answer on that because he wouldn't have asked that question otherwise. I'll tell you exactly how. We were at a gig. Paul Weller's sister, who used to be my PA at work at Acid Jazz, said, oh, have you met this guy? He's an actor. And I'd never seen The Office. I didn't know who he was, and we just got talking. And uh, he said, look, I just want to say the album you produced by the Brand New Heavies, you know, on that track, Sphinx. Um, did you uh, did you nick that key change from the Mizell Brothers? And I went, well, why did you know that? Because he looked like a child, obviously. Uh, and he said, no, no, I, I, I spotted it. And I said, well, actually, yeah, you're right. I did. We did. We did. I produced it, but they wrote it. The different, when you know actors before they're famous, they, well, they're just, um, they're your mate. But once they're famous, everybody wants to know them. So they're very suspicious and their guards up all the time. So, so me and Martin are very good friends. I spoke to him only two days ago, fun enough. Are you going to do very fun, one, is he, of your, uh, your cohorts? Well, Matt is one of my best friends as well. But me and Martin, to answer the question, me and Martin are just working on Jazz on the Corner Volume 3. Ah. So that will definitely be coming out. I don't know if either of them are cricket fans. Um, Matt Berry's father-in-law was a former manager of a football of a Premier League football team, but I'm not allowed to tell you who it was. There you go. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so sorry so we haven't really talked much about cricket it's just been me ranting hasn't it it's fine it's fine I think what we'll have to do is we'll have to drag you down to the studio uh, and you can co you can co-present a show one night and, well uh, it's not far is it Brentwood let's be honest I might even come on my scooter well there you go <laughs> if, the, if the sun's out um, yeah anyway so I, I stopped very briefly I just finishing off on cricket I used to take I coached um team at Epping and I was very proud that one of my girls ended up playing for Essex ladies first team although the trouble trouble with ladies cricket was she got married and stopped playing so you know you see them come through the ranks as a 12 year old all the way up you know uh, I, I was very proud of that um, but I stopped playing I had cancer about seven or eight years ago and I stopped playing then I've played since with a leg spin bowler it's like a sax player you've got to keep doing it on a regular basis or you lose the grip and the turn. So I don't know what it would be if I played again. But I, I might turn out for an old man Sunday team maybe one day, but you know, no one's asked me, so probably not. <laughs> many, many, many thanks for joining us, Ed. Really amazing chat. And um, I feel that we've only just scratched the surface with a lot. We will be back in touch and we'll get more stories out of uh, the one right. Mr. Ed Pillar. Well, thanks to both of you and take care.